I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18 today. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. We're in a series in this letter to uh, the Philippians called Struggling Well, the Joy of the Christian Journey. And the issue is that in this this sin-cursed world, we are going to struggle. The question is, will we struggle well? And Paul gives instructions in how to struggle well. Uh, In chapter 2 already, what we have discovered is First, a very convicting thing. I'm still just dwelling on this. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit from verse 3. That is a tall order. And if we're going to struggle well, that's what we have to do is empty ourselves so that there's nothing we're doing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but that we would count others more significant than ourselves. Last week then, we saw how to struggle well with this humility by looking to Christ's example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not uh, count uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And so this is how we are learning to struggle well with humility by looking to Christ. Now, this begs a question. The question is, how much effort do I put into this? How much of this is on me to do? And there are several schools of thought within Christianity on this subject. On the one hand, there is a group of people who say, we have no effort. We are to let go and let God. That is the way in which we would identify this growth in humility is just by surrender and letting go and letting God. There are others who would suggest that, you know what, it's commands in the Bible are given to be commanded and obeyed and you just got to discipline yourself and knuckle down and do it. And so, where is the answer? How is it that we can struggle well? Is it by our effort or not? For the answer to that question, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Please have a seat. 
So we will end up looking at three commands here in this text. Work out your own salvation, but God is the generator. God is the energizer. That's verses 12 and 13. Do all things without grumbling or disputing by holding fast to the word of life. That's verses 14 through 16. And be glad and rejoice together following the example of spiritual leaders. That's verses 17 and 18. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation, but God is the generator. He begins this verse by saying, therefore. It means as a result, as a result of Christ's example of humility, that there's something that we ought to attach in our own lives as a result of looking to Christ's. And then he adds these words, these beautiful words. Don't run over them too quickly. My beloved. Do you know affection is a wonderful preface? It's a wonderful introduction to any instruction. How many of you have ever had a teacher that, knew, that you knew just loved you? Zero. No. <laughs> There's a few people who are responding. Okay, good. You had a teacher that loved you. When you know that you have a teacher who loves you, there's something about their instruction that makes you eager to follow it. And Paul is demonstrating, even in just this little phrase, my beloved, he loves these people at Philippi. He loves them. He's not saying this in this kind of sense. As you've always obeyed, so now much more in, as in my presence, as also in my, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is not the spirit in which he is bringing this. Because he's, he begins it, my beloved. There's a beautiful thing about that, that I think Paul's imitating the very heart of God for you. It's not just Paul that's saying, therefore, my beloved. I actually think there may be an aspect here in which, as, God's, as what Paul writes is actually God's word to us, that, that God himself is expressing his affection for his people in this. Affection's a wonderful preface or introduction to any instruction. And then he says, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Uh, it's a beautiful relationship that Paul had with the Philippians, didn't they? They were eager to follow the apostles' instructions. But Paul acknowledges something that's just true of us. That is that when someone is around, it's easier to follow their instructions than when they're absent. Uh, those of you that have children may note this, or those of you who have ever been children may note this, which means everybody, okay? Uh, when your mom and dad aren't around... Is it easier or harder to follow their instructions? Or those of you with children, when you are around, is it easier or harder for your children to follow your instructions? Obviously, the presence of an authority gives weight to the instruction. And what Paul is acknowledging is, yeah, I, I get it. I get that that's true. And here I am in prison in Rome, and you're there in Philippi. But I want to tell you, as a result of 
the humility that I've suggested that is part of being a Christian, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, and by looking to the example of Christ, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. And now here's the main point. Here's the command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now this idea of fear and trembling all of a sudden brings us to a very different tone, doesn't it? It's one of respect and authority. But the respect and authority is not for Paul. It is the respect and authority of God. The fear and trembling is of God's holiness and character, not Paul's authority. Uh, This phrase, fear and trembling, is used several times in the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament phrase that's used, for example, of pagan peoples who have a respect for the God of Israel, and the way that that's expressed is they fear and tremble before the God of Israel. Exodus 15, 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. Or in Isaiah 19, 16, in that day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. So it's a phrase that's used of how pagans look at the God of the universe with fear and trembling. It's also used in the Old Testament about God's people because of what God does for them. In other words, the peoples of the earth tremble, fear and uh, tremble at the nation of Israel because of what God does for Israel. Deuteronomy 2.25, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven. The same thing is used in Deuteronomy 11.25. And then this phrase, fear and trembling, is also used in Psalm 55.5 to describe one's fear and dread of death. Uh, David writes, fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. So, um, Paul says that there should be some sense of awe about our position before God and not get too much on our high horse thinking that we know everything, that we ought to have a, a sense of awe and humbling, fear and trembling before God. Now, with that all in mind, let's look at just the simple phrase, work out your own salvation. What does work out mean? How much of our becoming like Christ comes from us? We love simple answers, don't we? But this answer has some complexity to it. Here, we see that there is human responsibility. There's a command to us. Work out your own salvation. It doesn't mean that we work for our salvation, but what it does mean is that we work out the implications and the practical living of the salvation that we already have in Christ. It is not as simple a matter as let go and let God. No, we are indeed to seek the guidance of the Spirit, to access in our minds and hearts our position in Christ, and to study with the intent to obey the Word of God. This is what it means to work out our own salvation. We do actively obey. 
Now the answer gets more complicated though, in that all of these words here in this paragraph are plurals, where it says you, as all you all have always obeyed. Work out all you all's own salvation. We need to be careful not to read more into that than we should, which is the trend today to see all salvation as corporate and the implications all corporate, but we should not ignore the plural here either. For Paul, there is no such thing, listen, there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. No such thing. We are collectively together as the body of Christ to work out our own salvation. I am amazed and saddened at how many Christians who are going the wrong way never take advantage of the remarkable power, love, and encouragement that the rest of the body of Christ can bring them. Instead, it's so easy to hide our sin and to think that we're alone and to either excuse our sin or to minimize it, say, eh, it's not that big a deal, or believe, well, I've just got to pull myself out of this. And only when lives are destroyed and things are irretrievably broken, habits are formed that are chains of steel, only then will some believers share with other believers or with those who shepherd them that they're encountering difficult problems. By then, they've sorted out a plan of action, and really what they want is for people just to put a stamp of endorsement on their plans. But the fact that this is a plural command, work out all y'all's own salvation. It means that here at East White Oak Bible Church, we need to create an environment where it is easy to share our troubles, our woes, and yes, our sins. When we have a plastic veneer of all's well, we are not being the true community of faith that God calls us to be. Now this requires huge risk, doesn't it? Huge risk on the part of those who are in trouble to be able to share honestly and exactly where they are. And so I get why this does not so very frequently happen, but I am sorry and grieve over the fact that we are not doing as well as we might in the area of working out our own salvation. We also should not lose sight of where we are in this letter. Paul said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He then gave the example of Christ in this and told us that we should think the same way as Jesus. So, Work out your own salvation must clearly have something to do with not being selfish or conceited. Let's go now to verse 13. 
It does not take being a Christian for very long to recognize that we, in our own strength, are very hit and miss about this matter of working out our own salvation. In fact, we're mostly miss (laughs) and not very much hit. It is just here that verse 13 is so important and encouraging. We work out our own salvation. Look at the word for. It means because, because it is God who is at work in you, in all you all. It is God who is at work in us. God is the energizer of our efforts. God grounds our efforts and He enables our efforts. This does not diminish them as efforts, but we must look to Him always. It is only by communion with God, it is only by seeking for His guidance, it is only by His work in us that we can be energized for His service. Both the will to do so Notice in verse 13, the will to work out our own salvation and the work of working out our own salvation. God is the one who provides both the will and the work. Now, the last phrase of verse 13 is often neglected by interpreters of these texts, and it is to their loss if, we, uh, if it is ignored. It says, for his good pleasure. If we fail to see that it is God's good pleasure that is the ultimate goal for our lives, we will be consumed with the pursuit of personal fulfillment. In other words, we look at life from the basis of how can I make my life better rather than how can I please God. And so what that means is that we can make several compromises and not work out our own salvation, either collectively or individually, and we cannot see God at work in us because we're not pursuing God's pleasure. It means that we will fail at working out our own salvation, drifting into human effort apart from dependence upon the Lord. And any human effort must have that dependency if it is to bring about God's good pleasure. So, work out your own salvation, but God is the energizer. Verses 14 through 16, again on this important theme of struggling well by our effort or not, Paul has a second command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing by holding fast to the word of life. Just as there is to be nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, we saw that in verse 3, so now we have the command expressed in a more positive way. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now these two words, grumbling and disputing, are very fascinating ones. The first word has to do with a complaining spirit, grumble. Um, In fact, as I recall, the the Greek word has an onomatopoetic sound to it. It's a gogudzomai. It just sounds like grumbling, right? Gogudzomai, gogudzomai, gogudzomai. 
The idea of grumbling and complaining. Again, let's pick up on the illustration of parents and children. If you tell a child to do something and they do it, but the whole time they're doing it, they're complaining about it. How does that feel in terms of obedience? Answer, not all that great. You know, if you tell your child, hey, would you go make your bed? Well, I don't know why I need to make my bed because my brother doesn't have to make his bed and I've made my bed every day this week and I'm tired and I've had a long time and on and on it goes, right? And you just feel like, okay, enough already with the complaining. That's how not just children are with parents. It's how we are about life. And Paul says, do all things, catch the universality of it, do all things without grumbling. A complaining spirit is not the spirit of Christ. Second word that's used here is without disputing, that is a debating spirit. And again, let's pick up on the uh, uh, parent telling the child to make the bed. And the child says, I have three reasons why I shouldn't have to make my bed today. And they give all the reasons why. And you give all this logic and reasoning and all that. And the parent just goes, just go make your bed. Right? And the kid goes, well, I don't know what I did wrong. They're just being irrational. I don't know. What's happening there is that there's a debating spirit about it that's, that's not the spirit of Christ. And so it is for all of us as believers. Did you capture the universality? Do all things without a debating spirit. But you might ask, well, what's wrong with complaining when there's something legitimately wrong? Or what's wrong with disputing something that's legitimately wrong? The explanation is in our very next verse, verse 15. Complaining and debating do not lead us to work out our salvation very well. When debating and complaining are absent, we are able to be the things that are in verse 15. Think of the things that you can be if you do all things without grumbling or disputing. First, you will be blameless and innocent. There will be a guileless purity about your life. Which, by the way, a guileless purity is better than a knowledgeable pig-headedness every day. Right? You might think you're so know-it-all. You know it. And you're just pig-headed in how you look at life. Guess what? That does not reveal the working out of our salvation like a guileless purity does. Blameless and innocent. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God. We put on display whose we are when we do not complain and debate. We put on display that we belong to God. We're his children. Next phrase. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. 
This language is taken directly from Deuteronomy 32.5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you see how Paul picks up on the language of blemish and crooked and twisted from Deuteronomy here? Paul is saying something that we become similar to the sacrificial lambs that were offered at the temple, that we are without blemish. Our lives are offered up not on the altar of personal rights and freedoms, but on the altar of service to Jesus Christ. We're offered as children of God without blemish. Note also that Paul is not denying the world that he is living in. He does not look at the world through rose-colored glasses like, it's all wonderful. I don't know why you don't just tra-la-la-la through life so happy without any grumbling or debating. No, no, no. He sees the world we live in. His view of the world is quite pessimistic, accurate, and painful. The generation that Paul lived in was crooked. It defied God and His ways. It was twisted. It self-justified their defiance of God and his ways. The Philippians lived right in the middle of that, and Paul still says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I don't think I need to give you any evidence for the fact that we still live in a crooked and twisted generation. What characterized the world that Paul inhabited and the world that the Philippians lived in characterizes our world as well. And right in the middle of the mess that is this world, crooked and twisted, Paul says you shine as lights in the world. By the lack of complaining and debating, it reveals the truest nature of God at work within us. And we shine as lights because the world, by comparison, is so very dark. Well, how do we do this? You know, how in the world can we do all things without grumbling or disputing? How how do we do this? Well, verse 16 gives the answer, by holding fast to the word of life. Now, this phrase is more debated than you might think. First, the question is, does, should we translate this hold fast to the word of life or hold out or hold forth the word of life? If it means hold fast to the word of life, it means to hang on tightly to something or someone. If it means the latter, it has to do with offering other people something or someone. Now, hold fast makes more sense if we're talking about doing everything without grumbling or disputing, right? We hold fast to the word of life so that we can avoid grumbling and disputing. Hold forth makes more sense if it's explaining how we are to shine as lights in the world. How do we shine as lights in the world? We hold forth, hold out the word of life to people. My sense of the passage is that the phrase holding fast to the word of life, goes back to explaining how not to grumble and complain. If that's so, then holding fast is the best translation. But there's another problem here in verse 16. 
what or who is the word of life? In 1 John 1, 1, we have a very similar phrase which suggests that the word of life is the person of Jesus Christ, that which we have heard, what we've seen, what we've looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, 1 John 1, 1. So that's very clearly a reference to Jesus Christ. So we hold fast to Jesus. That's how we can live life without grumbling and disputing. Most commentators, however, reject this idea and say that the word of life, as Paul uses it here, it refers to the gospel or the good news about Jesus. Because whenever Paul uses this word that's translated word, it's making a reference to the gospel. So it's by holding fast to the gospel that we can live a life without grumbling or disputing. We remember what Jesus has done for us in forgiving us of our sins without any merit on our part at all, purely by grace and mercy, it is holding fast to that true gospel we live a life without grumbling or complaining. Now, in the end, there's not much difference there, is there? The point is to look to Jesus and the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done, and in doing so, we will be able to live lives that are free of grumbling and disputing. And that fits verses 5 through 11, doesn't it? Because Jesus lived that way, and Paul tells us that we should have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul always is writing with the end in view. He always, everything he writes, he's thinking about the end in view. For him, that end is what he calls the day of Christ. Um, how Handel described it is that great day when the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. At that day, that day of Christ, Paul wants to have faith that his efforts toward the Philippians have not been in vain. Look at the end of verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that day of his kingdom coming, I may be proud. Now when he says proud, he doesn't mean in some weird sinful way, but rather have a confidence that his life had been lived for something worthwhile, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And I think all of us have that desire, don't we, if we're a believer in Jesus, that we look back at the end of our lives and we say, did I do anything of value to my master? The longer I live, the closer I get to the end of my life. That's true for every one of us, by the way. Um, but I find this, the longer I live, to be an increasingly haunting question. Did I do, of any, did I do anything? that was of value to my master. Work out your own salvation, but God is the energizer. Do all things without grumbling or disputing by holding fast to the word of life. And now verses 17 and 18, be glad and rejoice together following the example of spiritual leaders. Verse 17, Paul rejoices 
even if he is going to be a sacrifice. Here, the visual picture that he's giving us is of a temple sacrifice. Numbers 28.7, an animal is sacrificed or grain is offered up as a burnt offering, and the priest will pour out a drink offering of wine over the sacrifice. And so Paul is saying, you Philippians, you're sacrificing yourselves on the altar of your service to Jesus, and I am the drink offering being poured out upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. The image is not about the potential that Paul's going to die as a result of his imprisonment. That's not, I don't think, what he has in mind. Uh, in fact, chapter 1, verses 25 and 26, demonstrate that Paul's convinced that he's not, that, that he's going to live through this imprisonment and be released. The drink offering that he's describing here seems best to be a description of Paul's struggles in life, his present struggles and how to struggle well. He's being poured out as a drink offering, his struggles on top of the sacrificial offering of the Philippian struggles. So this is all about struggling well, right? Even if I am being poured out in the struggles I have, on top of the sacrificial offering of your struggles for your faith in Jesus Christ, he says, even if that's so, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Even in these struggles, he's glad and rejoices with them. What's fascinating to me is that he has both those words, be glad and rejoice. It's the it's the same thing. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to emphasize the value and importance and what is there for us all in Christ Jesus in struggling well. We can rejoice and be glad. And so in verse 18, Paul says, likewise, he calls the Philippians to the same rejoicing gladness. You also, same rejoicing that Paul has in his struggles should be ours in our struggles, you rejoice individually, you, re you rejoice corporately. Our praise and our worship should reflect our gladness, our rejoicing, even in the midst of the struggles of life. And this rejoicing is not, as commentator Gordon Fee says, a delight in feeling badly. There are some Christians that have that weird notion that somehow we're supposed to feel good about being, having bad circumstances. He's not saying Declare your struggles as good things. No, they can be very bad things. But rather, because of the foundation of Christ's past and future work for us, we have joy abounding. Not based on circumstances, but based on Christ and the gospel. It is this heart of rejoicing that will bring an end to the heart of grumbling and disputing that began our paragraph. Did you catch how the paragraph begins and ends? Paragraph begins, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It ends, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What a contrast. Soren Kierkegaard, the famous philosopher, told a story once of a fire that broke out backstage at a theater and he said that there was a clown that came out to the stage to announce to the crowd that there was a fire and warning the public to leave. The crowd thought that it was part of the play. They thought it was a joke. 
and they applauded. And the clown repeated the warning and the laughter and the applause just grew greater. Kierkegaard says, I think that's just how the world will come to an end, to general applause from wits who believe it's a joke. We live in a very broken world, twisted, crooked and twisted generation. Um, and there are people, apart from Christ, who think it's all just for personal peace and affluent life and personal satisfaction that this life exists, and someone's shouting fire, and they're just laughing. That's the world as we know it right now. But for the believer... There's real rejoicing and gladness. Why? We can work out our salvation because God is at work in energizing us. We can do everything without grumbling or disputing by holding fast to the word of life. And we can rejoice and be glad because we've seen spiritual leaders like the Apostle Paul, like others that are examples for us, who are rejoicing and are glad in all their struggles too. My friends, this is the answer to the question, struggling well, is it our effort or not? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I want to pray today for anyone here in this room who's never put their faith in Jesus. I would ask that you would help them to see that it is not our own efforts at all that save us. That's by your grace and mercy. And that they would say to you, Lord, I'm a sinner. I fall short of your glory. I believe in Jesus and what he did at the cross to forgive me of my sin. I believe he rose from the dead and I, I want to have the eternal life he promises as a gift, I receive that gift, Lord. For those of us who are believers, help us to work out our own salvation together as a church family. Help us to create environments where it is easy for us to share our sins and woes, and we can together encourage one another to become more and more like our Master Jesus, that it would be you that would be at work in our body, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Now, Lord, help us, even in this season of uh, the pandemic, where there's lots of grumbling and disputing, help us as believers to be marked by doing everything without grumbling or disputing, that we may be blameless and innocent children of light without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom, Lord, help it be that we would shine as stars in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that at the day of Christ, we would be able to say together our lives mattered. We did not live empty lives. And then, Lord, in the midst of the struggles, and there are a thousand struggles represented in this room and on live stream. 
in the midst of those struggles, teach us what it means to rejoice and be glad in the midst of them. Looking to others who have been helpful to us in that example, most particularly the Apostle Paul here. May it all be for your good pleasure, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.